You're listening to episode 56 of the Get In My Garden podcast. I'm Aaron Moskowitz, and today we have back Sarah Schuster of the Tending Seeds podcast, sharing about fire cider, fermenting, foraging, and preservation as we approach winter. She updates us on her projects, how her podcast and herbalism businesses are evolving, and how she is building a community to sustain her homesteading and teaching lifestyle. Sarah tells us what she has learned about successful fermenting, microbial diversity, and making koji with legend Sandor Katz. Next week, we will be back with Dan Long, expert beekeeper, discussing the life of bees and beekeeping in the winter. Follow the podcast on Instagram at GetInMyGarden, and go to the website GetInMyGarden.com to sign up for the very special but still non-existent newsletter where I will eventually share special content and freebies from my guests. You can follow Sarah on Instagram at foxandelder or go to her new website, foxandelder.com. I'm excited to announce that the podcast is now an affiliate for Elaine Ingham's Soil Food Web Foundation course. If you're a farmer or gardener looking to take your knowledge of natural farming and soil restoration to the next level to increase yields and profits, or if you're interested in restoring soil and potentially making an impactful career out of saving the environment, head over to soilfoodweb.com slash garden to see what this training program has to offer. The all-new Soil Food Web Foundation courses are being released this week, and the first 150 students will be able to save $1,600. If you're familiar with Elaine's work and are on the fence, this is a great opportunity to take the course at a lower price. Check back to see the special, which should be going live by the end of this week. There's no better time to do this than this winter. My name is Sarah Schuster. I have a podcast called Tending Seeds, which is all about my adventures in homesteading and herbalism. I'm a medicinal herb farmer in Middle Tennessee, as well as an herbalist. And I like to talk about all things herbal, as well as projects on our homestead, which we've been living on for about a year and a half now, and all of our gardening and farming adventures. I'm really excited to talk to you again. Me too. Yeah, this is great. I'm super stoked. How has it been going? It's been going really well. Um, I started teaching this fall, and so I've done some workshops on elderberry syrup and making fire cider. Uh, my fire cider mm. workshop actually sold out in like two days, so I'm doing another one next month. That's um, so cool. So yeah. tell us what that is. So fire cider is sort of this, it's this like herbal tonic that people have used for like decades and decades that Rosemary Gladstar is credited with sort of being the one that kind of came up with it. And the base of that is ginger, horseradish, onions, and garlic. And then people usually add like some hot pepper sort of to taste. And then you can add other herbs to that as well if you want to. I like to add rosemary and thyme. And then you're basically pouring that, uh, covering that with apple cider vinegar, shaking that every day and letting that sit for about three to four weeks. Then you strain that out. Yeah. And so it's this like really kind of spicy you can either just use that as is or most people like to add a sweetener like maple syrup or honey to it just to kind Mm -hmm. of tone down so it should be like sweet and spicy at the same time and just taking that as a daily sort of preventative tonic because it's really heating and and stimulating for this time of year it's so cool yeah it's super yummy and i love just it's such a it's such an easy thing to make i mean you can literally go get all the ingredients for it from your grocery store Maybe, I mean, horseradish is maybe a little harder to find, especially as fire cider becomes more popular. But yeah, it's mm. it's really awesome. And so I love teaching that to people and just saying, please go teach five other people 
and yeah, just kind of spreading that knowledge is super fun. That's awesome. And since we last talked, you have other things that you're selling as well, right? Yes. So I've started doing a lot of custom herbal tea blends for folks, and that's been really fun to do and put together and just getting like really interesting requests from people that just are great because they sort of challenge me and push me out of my boundaries and comfort zone a little bit. So, you know, I've had people reach out for things like, hey, I need a herbal tea to maybe help me sleep at night or to work with digestive issues. And then I've had just the full spectrum of other things. I really enjoyed putting a tea together for someone who wanted an herbal blend to help them transition from like work mindset to being with their family at the end of the day. So something for like that sort of like liminal space. Yeah, to like transition to like it's family time now. I recently had someone reach out to me that does tarot card readings and they wanted to, they basically had this tarot card they've been working with and they were like, can you make me a tea based on this tarot card? Perfect for your work, huh? (laughs) Right. I was like, oh, this is like all my favorite things in one place. So yeah. And so then I posted about that. So other people have been reaching out as well with like various cards from decks that they use and stuff. And it's been really fun just seeing where this is all going and figuring out like what people want, you know, and what their needs are for me to try to meet for them. Have you found people all over the country because of your Instagram? Yeah, yeah, it's been really cool. Like, I love bioregional herbalism and working with the plants in my region, but then it's really neat to, like, get to work with people that are living sort of all over and think about, like, well, what plants are available to them? What energies do I want to, like, bring into this for them that might be in their own bioregion as well? Awesome. Do you want to talk about your experience with Sander Cats and what you've learned about fermenting? Oh, gosh, yeah. Because that feels like such a great autumn adventure for people. Yeah, that was really cool. So Sandor Katz is sort of like one of the big names in fermentation. I mean, he kind of wrote the Bibles for it in a lot of ways and has been responsible for introducing so many people to it. And so I've done like basic fermentation stuff. Like I make kombucha and I make sauerkrauts and things like that. But he was doing, I'm really lucky to live in Tennessee, which is where he lives also. There's a really cool local business about an hour away from here called Short Mountain Cultures. And they're the ones that hosted him for this workshop. And it was a really great experience. It was a workshop for koji, which is a particular type of fermentation that is used to make things like miso and soy sauce. Okay. And yeah, so this was a more kind of advanced thing than anything I've ever done before. Like I said, I've just done like kombuchas and sauerkrauts and beginner level fermentation stuff there. And so this was like the next, you know, sort of step up for me. And I was really excited to try it out. So what exactly is it just out of, I mean, as as a simple explanation for people? Yeah, so it's just a different type of bacteria. And it's usually grown on a grain. So a lot of times, like we were growing it just on like either barley or rice. And it grows pretty quickly. Um, The thing that makes it sort of more advanced level the conditions for growing it are more specific in terms of keeping the right temperature and things like that to have that happen. Uh It actually happens pretty quickly, like less than 48 hours from the time that you inoculate your rice or barley for you to actually like grow the koji. Wow. And so it's a pretty fast, yeah, it's a pretty fast process. So they had some batches. It sounds really awesome because it's kind of related to Korean natural farming where you're potentially using indigenous microbes or if you... Mm -hmm do it in your backyard, regardless. Right. Yeah. So it's really cool because, you know, Sandra was talking about how, you know, you have all these bacteria that are sort of around and in your environment. And a lot of times with fermentation, it's just a matter of like which ones you're sort of, you know, catching, quote unquote, 
or trying to bring out at that particular time. Mm -hmm. And so that's like the interesting thing with like the Koji is you only have so much time to get it in that right setting and and temperature environment. Otherwise, other things are going to beat it out, so to speak, and take over instead and not give you the end result that you wanted. And so, yeah, it was really interesting. I feel like I learned a lot. I feel like I still have a lot more to learn about it, but it definitely was a really great, like, hands-on way to get started with that. I have a little batch of, like, chickpea miso, like, in a back corner of my closet now that I'm hoping is going to do the right thing. I have to check it in, like, a few more weeks and see what it's doing. Interesting. So the koji, it it inoculates and it, it develops over two days, and then it's mixed with the grain or i guess it would be a legume of your choice right to make a miso yeah so then you like you take that and it's yeah you have these koji grains it just looks like powder almost and then yeah you're just adding that you know and miso you also add a little bit of your previous batch of miso Mm. so you're sort of keeping it going like there are like restaurants where they've got a decade old you know miso Kind of like the idea of like people with like sourdough starters, where you're always sort of taking some forward for what you're working on, but then also saving some for the next batch, and you're sort of like perpetuating it going forward. The podcast has constantly returned to the microbial activity of our yards and our environment, and also Mm -hmm. people who are interested in mushrooms or any type of fungi. It's all part of that. Yeah, super cool. And yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's so interesting. And it's really fascinating. And I'm just like, so excited to be learning about it. And it's really cool that we have this resource here in Tennessee, because he does workshops pretty regularly. He also still travels like all over the world teaching this and speaking too. And so what have you learned about the health benefits of it all? That's just sort of going back to like, you know, kombuchas and sauerkrauts were just the wider variety of like bacteria that you're introducing to yourself. Diversity breeds resilience is something we say in like social activism and then also just in like farming and everything as well as the not putting your eggs in one basket, so to speak, always kind of tends to pay off and you're disaster proofing yourself as much as you can. And it's sort of the same when you think about your gut biome. The more varieties of bacteria you can put in there, the more diversity, you know, you can create, the healthier you're probably going to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, same idea with like farming where it's, do you want to mono crop or do you want to have like a diversity of crops in case, you know, you have a bug problem and one of your crops fails or something that year. For sure. Yeah. Well, I definitely think that probiotics have always made me feel like my immune system's better off. And if I were to get a cold or something, I could kick it in like one day. Right? Yeah. And that's a really great way to feel about your health too. And and again, just that diversity of, you know, getting the different bacteria. Because like a lot of the probiotics that are, you know, being sold, if you're just taking a pill form, they're all kind of pulling usually from the same handful of strains of bacteria. And if you're making you know, sourdough bread or something or sauerkraut or kombucha or now with like the koji or eating, you know, yogurt. It's like hopefully you're pulling in different strains from each of those additional types of fermented foods. Makes sense. Sandra was talking about you don't need to eat a pound of sauerkraut a day, but it'd be great if you ate a tablespoon or two of it. And then maybe you had a little bit of miso from this jar of stuff and then a little bit of kombucha over here. Yeah, because each of those things might be a better uh, medium to grow different beneficial bacteria or yeasts and for your from your environment, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if there's any science behind this, but uh, I like to think that if we're living in one environment and we make a some sort of fermented product from there, that maybe that will strengthen our immune system or tune us with our land, you know? Yeah, to- yeah, no, I totally agree. Maybe not cleaning your vegetables super well all the time and just getting like a little bit of that bacteria into your diet, you know? For sure. Or if you're living in a city even and you were to ferment something within your building... That has mm-hmm. its own micro 
climate, I guess, microbiome. Totally. So you have to, you're living in that environment. So hopefully that would help you adapt to it. Yeah, I totally think so. Or like people, you know, that catch their own wild yeast to make sourdough and stuff Mm -hmm. or to start like kombucha cultures and stuff like that. You're getting something that's particular to the area where you are really making something that's really specific to you and your environment. I know you said you were interested in talking about like types of food preservation and just things like coming off the farm or like out of the woods here. Oh yeah. As we transition to winter because I think winter, a lot of people who are doing it, they're they're going to have more time to listen to podcasts. So I want to make sure that I'm giving them something to listen to. Totally. We have to keep yeah, our no, people totally. going. So I've been doing a little bit of gathering and foraging. I actually just went last week and with a few friends and we gathered acorns. Oh, I saw that on your Instagram. That looked so good. Yeah, that was super fun. They're actually coming over um, later today so that we can process those. And we're going to get those all out of their shells and then do the leaching process and make flour out of those. So what is that? You have to leach. What do you do to make them ready to eat? Yeah, so... Acorns all have some level of tannins in them, which can make them pretty unappetizing and bitter tasting to eat. If you're not sure, bust out an acorn and take a bite out of it. Oh, like, yeah. It's not going to hurt you, but you're not going to enjoy the process. And is probably. that why the chipmunks like to hide them? Yeah, they're just trying to do me a favor. It's all about uh, you making flour and they know they're helping. So we just like went out to one of the parks here and drove around and, you know, gathered a bunch of those together. And that was super fun. So, yeah, basically, we're just going to. My friends said they started experimenting with some to figure out like the best way to crack these. And they were saying just using like a mortar and pestle kind of turned out to be the fastest Hmm. way. So we're going to do that tonight and just, you know, put a movie on and, you know, watch something dumb and bust out. I don't even know how many pounds of acorns we gathered. So crack through those. And then you basically just you're soaking those for several days or even longer and just like changing out the water. You'll see the tannins start to come up off of them in the water and, you know, darken the water. And so you're just doing that multiple times until your water is staying clear when you soak them. Okay. Or, I mean, you can taste test them too as you go as well. Mm -hmm. And then once you're done with that, then you can dry them out and then turn them into flour. And then it'll go rancid pretty quickly. So if you're going to use it in the short term, like in in the next like week or so, you could put it in your fridge. But long term, you're going to want to put that into your freezer. Okay. To have that. And so a lot of people like to bake with the acorn flour. And there are lots of recipes you can find online for doing like little acorn cookies, usually Hmm. mixing that with other more conventional types of flour. But then I've also been reading about people using the acorn flour, either mixed into oatmeal and porridge or using it as a thickener for soups and stews. And so that's really what I'm more interested in, in trying this out with. That's awesome. I bet it would be great for people who do try gluten-free or some people paleo where they're just using almond flour a lot of the time Mm -hmm. or coconut flour. I bet it would go really well with those. Yeah, totally. Or even just to be able to substitute this, you know, as something that's, you know, you're not having to like transport. Yeah, just having like virtually, I mean, it still has some footprint because you probably drove there to harvest them. But yeah, way easier to get to you than, you know, cashews or something. Oh, totally. That's awesome. I I was thinking originally if the rodents bury them, and I wonder if that has something to do with letting them ferment or to get rid of the tannins or something like that. Ooh, that's a good question. I I don't know, to be honest. Yeah, that's interesting. So like acorns, and then also we've actually had a pretty decent mushroom season here. In terms of like preservation, I've got a bunch of dried chanterelles, which I love to throw into soups and stuff, and also like reishi mushroom, which then I'll... Anytime I do like herbal broth, I'll throw like a few slices of, of reishi mushroom in there as well. And that's really nice. And you found so, those locally in Tennessee. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. So that's been good. 
I think a lot of people who listen are probably very interested in that, at least uh, it depends on where you live, but most areas have some type of mushroom season. So those are great ideas. And then also tree nuts, like big trees that exist in suburbia too. So Right. Yeah. I mean, you can go to your local parks and stuff and, you know, just have at it. <laughs> so And just be prepared. Like you will get some looks from people. Anytime I've gone out to harvest anything that's anywhere where people can drive by or walk by me, they're always like what are you doing and i'm surprised oh no yeah i anything i go to harvest or or gather people are always stopping over the summer i was on like a back road off of a main road and was 20 or 30 feet off the road harvesting like elderberries and you know i have a basket i have scissors i'm actively like harvesting stuff and people are pulling over they're like is your car broken down and like no like I'm like I'm literally you can see what I'm doing uh, and even like harvesting acorns last week people were like what are you doing what are you going to do with those and I mean it's cool if they're actually interested then I'm totally happy to talk with them but there are definitely people that are just like you are a weirdo like what is happening I think that might be something to do with the culture of the area maybe because I think if you were in the northwest just foraging is such a part of the culture people wouldn't even look twice yeah I wish I wish it was more like that here. And so I'm always just hopeful that, well, if you see small groups of people out there, then I mean, I'm happy if you do talk to me and honestly want to know, and maybe it'll inspire you to go do it as well. So I'm always happy to like mm-hmm. tell people. That's cool. That reminds me. So I was looking at, you know, different land and things. I mean, the Southwest is a wonderful, sunny place. And there are places where there's good land that mm-hmm. people could homestead. And it's still, but it's still not that cheap for verdant farmable land Mm -hmm. and then in the northwest it's also uh it's i would say less expensive if you're in the boonies okay and there there's a lot of good fertile land out there i think one of the other best places is where you are can you speak about that a little bit oh just about buying land here yeah i think we might have talked about it for a minute but like yeah uh, yeah it seems it always comes back when I'm looking at different people on Instagram who are farming or I mean, you you mentioned the Carolinas, but that mm-hmm. whole southeast area is such good land and seems like a good place for young people. Yeah, it's I mean, there's definitely a lot of land available if you're not really set on having to be like in one of the big cities, like if you want to buy just a traditional house and, you know, 0.2 acres in Nashville right now, that's going to be a lot more money. But if you're willing to be 45 minutes to an hour outside of a, of a bigger city and you're looking for larger pieces of land and you don't need like a really fancy house on it, you can definitely find pretty affordable stuff still. And definitely the further away you get from Nashville itself, like if you had, you know, halfway between us and like Knoxville or Chattanooga, there's definitely a ton of land still available for people that are trying to farm. You know, the flip side of that is that then you have to deal with like, you know, the transportation issues of getting to market if you're going to do farmers markets and, and stuff like that or sell to restaurants, which is definitely like a consideration. But there's Mm -hmm. for sure plenty of land, you know, the Carolinas as well. Like I think they're, you know, they have the same issue of if you want to live really close to Asheville, you're going to be paying a premium, but there's still plenty of land in other parts of North Carolina, Kentucky, places like that. I think one of the interesting things is just the weed pressure, though, in the in the South. Oh, Um, yeah, just talking to farmers that are maybe a bit more north of us. 
Um, I think they're just maybe having less weed pressure is sort of the vibe that I get when you compare. Interesting. Yeah, comparing like experiences and farmers in the South like definitely talk about weed pressure like a lot more as being something you have to contend with. That's more just because we don't get a really good hard winter to sort of like help break that cycle every year necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm really hoping for a good solid winter this year because we did not have one at all last year. Now, what's your climate zone? Is it like eight or nine or something? I think I'm seven B. If oh, I remember okay. right. Yeah. That's so still kind of cold. <laughs> it's it, it should be, but it really isn't. And like like last year, I think we had snow like twice the entire oh, wow. winter. And, it, and by snow, I mean an inch or two and it was gone within a day. Gotcha. Tell us more about what you're the other winter type activities you're doing as you approach winter. And, you know, potentially food preservation. Yeah. So a lot of my food preservation has been just bringing in like the last of the herbs from the garden and things like that. So like the vegetable garden, you know, the summer garden has been done for a while and I've been slacking. I actually, our weather has been so weird here. We didn't really have a a fall. We pretty much went from like summer being and being like a hundred degrees to then three weeks later we had snow. It's super, super strange. And so I I haven't actually gotten like a fall garden put in because it was too hot to start spinach seedlings. So I've been bringing in like all the herbs from the farm, just the last bits of everything. I try to leave everything as long as I can. I'll always leave a few plants of each type and let them go to seed and also just leave them for like the pollinators as the last flowers and bits of food for as long as possible. That's awesome. Yeah. So bringing that stuff in, this is also like a really good time of year in the falls when you dig a lot of roots, if you're doing herbal stuff. So burdock and dandelion root and yellow root and stuff like that. So that's been keeping me pretty busy. I will, I can share with you a gardening fail that I posted about recently, (laughs) which is that I grew fennel for the first time this year. Uh And I was super stoked. I was getting like really great pieces off the top, you know, the fronds and things like that. But I was like really dreaming about like, okay, these couple of fennel bulbs that I'm going to get towards the end of the season. And so the night before we were supposed to get our first freeze, I was like, all right, I've waited long enough. Like I have to dig them out tonight, but it's cool. I have all these recipes I've been dreaming of making. And then like I go to dig them up and there's no bulb. They're just like these scrawny little things. Anyway, it turns out there are, there's not all fennel makes bulbs. Oh, no. So there's a type of fennel that is good for bulbs. And then there's the other type that's more for the fronds. And I can't find the seed packet for this particular batch that I planted to confirm this or not. But I'm assuming that maybe I just had the wrong type and didn't realize that there were other types of it. So I thought you were going to say that some sort of animal got to them. No, Have you had issues with that? (laughs) Uh, Not with the root stuff, but I definitely like we have a lot of pressure here from deer. And, you know, we've got lots of gangs of turkeys or I mean, flocks, but I call them gangs because they they look like little thugs that just roam across the yard. And they're just like, what's good? And they're just eating whatever they want. We have so many animals that come through here. I'll come home sometimes at night and there's like nine deer in the yard just eating whatever they want. So yeah, uh, fencing is definitely a major issue (laughs) here. Oh yeah. It's kind of a tangent. I read this book about like the attention economy and just like how we're so bombarded by so much stuff. And I know a lot of people are shifting over to doing like electronic newsletters and stuff on their website in case Instagram ever goes away. And plus you, you know, collect their emails and stuff. I'm actually trying... My goal for next year is to have set up a Patreon where instead of doing an email newsletter, I'm actually going to do a snail mail newsletter once a month. And yeah, and it's so it's going to be hand written and hand illustrated by me. And then there's going to be the next tier up is to get that newsletter, but also with a single bag of like an herbal tea blend for that month. That is so smart. Thanks. Yeah, I'm super stoked about that. 
I want to time it to where it either gets to you at the full or the new moon or something. I think the full moon. So like the idea of whenever you get your letter, like it's going to get there a few days before, but hold on to it. And then we're all going to read it and drink our like cup of tea on that same night, you know? That is awesome. I think it'll be super cool. So I'm really big on canning and also drying. So I think about when I talk about different food preservation methods, I like to think about once I'm done preserving that food, is it going to take any additional input for me? So like I have a very small freezer that takes electricity to keep going versus if I was to like dry something once it's done, you know, and I store it in a mason jar and put it in like a cabinet, I'm no, no longer having to put energy and electricity into like, keeping mm-hmm. that going. So I do a lot of drying for all my herbs and things like that. I basically save freezing for things that maybe would get too funky if I change them in another way. Uh-huh. So Pesto is like a big one. We had a really, really good year for basil this year. And so I've saved like a ton of pesto that I made. And I like to preserve fruit in different ways. A lot of people will can that into like jams and jellies, but I don't tend to use a lot of those. So I do freeze fruit a lot of the time. Canning is really great. And I think a lot of people are scared of it, but it's a super easy skill to learn. And there's so much really good free information out there from like the USDA. Uh You can pretty much get on there and like anything you want to can, they're going to have that information for available for you in terms of what your altitude is and like how long you need to can something. It seems like a fun thing to do, but I also think it could be exhausting. Yeah, it it can be a lot of work, but I think one of the things I've noticed about doing any sort of farming and food preservation is that it is really a good way to build community because it's so much more fun to do with some other Mm -hmm. people. I was talking about like people coming over to like process acorns tonight, having like a canning party or even just having one or two friends with you that are going to come help you like snap green beans into cans, you know, chop up fruits and stuff and get ready to peel a few boxes of tomatoes or something just makes all that go so much faster. And then everyone like, you know, takes it, you know, you split it up at the end and take some home with you. I think that alone would make a really great episode of the future. Talking about the community component of keeping your life sustainable. Ooh, totally. Yeah. I think one of our future projects here on the farm in terms of like food preservation is going to be uh, digging a root cellar for oh. ourselves. I wasn't even sure if that was an option, but then I watched, you know, thanks YouTube, I watched a YouTube video about a couple that did this where they basically just dug this enormous pit in the ground and then filled, you know, earth bags and tamped those down to make the walls of it and then, you know, insulated or huh. uh, weatherproofed around that. Our house is pretty small. And it's fine for us in terms of space. But then I realized like, oh, I don't have really room for like a pantry here. I don't have a root cellar to keep, you know, winter squash and onions and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think that's going to be one of our future projects awesome. at some point. On so the farm. a root yeah, cellar would stoked. probably stay at like 55 degrees or something like that. Yeah, that's a pretty perfect temperature to try to keep it at is you're keeping it, yeah, around like 55 degrees, decent humidity. So it might be and, the perfect place yeah. to do an in- you know, some sort of sauerkraut that's going to get indigenous microbes too. Yes, that is my other thing is even before before I knew that I could really like dig a root cellar for myself, I was thinking about just, yeah, if I can just dig a little fermentation cave or something for myself, you know, put crocs into. I mean, there are people that still do the traditional like burying your kimchi Mm -hmm. and stuff to let it ferment. I know some herbalists actually bury their fire cider and let it ferment for a couple weeks. I haven't tried that. I don't know how different that would turn out. And when everybody talks about how their own backyard has a unique 
biome and that's how they can capture it you know that's just so cool yeah i mean and how fun would that be talking again just the idea of like community and doing food preservation stuff together how about the the fun part is like then eating it all together later on and having like a a dinner where like everyone brings something fermented to share and just getting to sort of taste the differences of you know someone that lives on the other side of the county Mm. like what do you know what does your sauerkraut taste like that is so cool yeah i think that could be super fun so much of this stuff it's pretty low tech but time intensive and hands-on so like you can have one person that knows what they're doing and then 10 people that have never made sauerkraut before and just hey everyone show up with like a cutting board and a decent knife and we're gonna be you know chopping cabbage and stuff for a couple hours everyone can do that Mm -hmm. you know it's super easy and then you've got 10 more people that can go teach 10 other people each you know how to make sauerkraut that's awesome so do you think that you're going to get that in before next season We're still finishing up some projects here, like finishing um, the sunroom build out. And then I also have this crazy dream that I'm going to like build a greenhouse this winter (laughs) to be able to start my seeds in for next Mm. year. Um, We'll see if we'll see if that happens. That kind of depends on like what kind of winter we actually have. If it's crazy cold to like work outside or not, I think I found some pretty cool, like kind of like DIY plans and stuff online. And I think I think I could pull it off and just do sort of like a proverbial barn raising or whatever. Get some friends over, buy some pizza and beer. Nice. (laughs) And knock it out in like a weekend, hopefully. But yeah, I've been looking at the ones where you just do the roof with like the corrugated plastic or whatever. Mm -hmm. That seems like the best way to go. Like from the farms that I've visited, almost all of them talk about the hoop houses or modified hoop houses that they're just so cheap and easy to get going and they last a long time. Yeah, it seems pretty low entry to to get into one of those. So and just the benefits of less, you know, bug pressure and stuff in there. And yeah, it seems totally worth it. So awesome. Yeah, definitely have to look into that. Well, I guess one last question that just came up. Uh, Are you interested in hemp at all? Does the farm bill affect you at all? Yeah, that's really not something that we've thought about going into. So yeah, the farm bill hasn't really affected us. And I know other people are like really getting into it, but it just feels like the market's become so oversaturated already. Oh, yeah. And I worry that it's just going to be like a passing fad. So I think I'm just going to hunker down and keep doing what I've been doing. I just love the fact that it's like this all-american crop that's been grown since the you know the first days of farming in america but i also am realistic thank you so much sarah it's really wonderful to catch up with you you too aaron thank you i really appreciate it and i wish you luck with your projects and your wonderful podcast thanks so much you too thanks a lot Bye. bye my goal is that you are inspired this winter to continue your learning your hobbies projects and businesses related to natural farming hydro and aquaponics bees and pollinator insects, fungi and mycology, soil and the soil food web, microbes, plants, and however you are involved in entertaining yourself in a way that benefits the earth and our future. Be an ambassador for the fungi and the bees. Also, I'm excited to announce that the podcast is now an affiliate for Elaine Ingham's Soil Food Web Foundation course. If you're a farmer or gardener looking to take your knowledge of natural farming and soil restoration to the next level to increase yields and profits, or if you are interested in restoring soil and potentially making an impactful career out of saving the environment, head over to soilfoodweb.com slash getinmygarden to see what this training program has to offer. The all-new Soil Food Web Foundation courses are being released this week, and the first 150 students will be able to save $1,600. If you're familiar with Elaine's work and are on the fence, this is a great opportunity to take the course at a lower price. Check back to see the special, which should be going live by the end of this week.
Follow this show at Get In My Garden on Instagram to see pictures of what we discussed here and to hear about upcoming episodes. Also visit GetInMyGarden.com and make sure to sign up for the email list, which will soon include supplemental and special content or freebies from our guests, as well as articles and other interesting things I share with my friends. Subscribe to the Get In My Garden podcast wherever you listen from and leave a positive review to support the show. Thank you so much. Next week, we will be back with Dan Long, expert beekeeper discussing the life of bees and beekeeping in the winter.